Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. For the reading of the word of the Lord in Mark 12, verse 38 through 44. And then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, those who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. The one poor widow came, then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, for they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Amen. You could be seated. Well, again, my name's Nate. Happy to be with you guys this morning and uh, excited to be teaching from Mark 12. And uh, as Kyle said, we're in a series together called The Way, and uh, we're talking about the way Jesus lived. And uh, really, this we're looking at in chapter 12, sort of the final week of Jesus' life. And Mark's gospel can be split up into two parts, sort of. Chapters 1 through 10 covers about three years of his ministry. It begins really with his baptism um, and then into his full-time ministry. And then beginning in chapter 11 through the end, through chapter 16, this is like the last week of Jesus' life. So it really slows down and follows that final week. And at this particular moment in chapter 12, Jesus is being questioned by the religious leaders. Sort of the big three have taken their swing at Jesus. They've, he's talked to the Pharisees, he's talked to the Sadducees, and then he's talking to the scribes. And the goal is really to trip Jesus up in his words or, or, or find something that they could sort of get the people to turn on him for. That, their kind of goal was two things. Either one, find some sort of illegal activity or thought that Jesus was doing that they could turn him into Rome or something controversial that would get the, the multitude, the people, to turn against him. Because they, they weren't necessarily, their primary goal wasn't to kill Jesus. Their primary goal was to just get them to forget about Jesus. They, they were upset that the multitudes were following after him. So if they could get people to either turn on him, and when that didn't work, if they could get him uh, 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 arrested, condemned, murdered, that was their goal. And so they're trying to confuse him. They're trying to get him to, trip, uh, to be tripped up. And he answers, and to quote Pastor Andrew, he has wiped the floor with them. His responses were uh, just sort of get them to shut up, walk away. Okay, it's not working. And now in, in, with all of that, his answers to their questions, and then he asks them a question, is really to show them that they're off in what they think about God and how to follow him. That's really what, what his answers show. It's like, hey, religious leaders, you guys don't get it. What, what you're doing how you're following God, what you think about God, it just isn't right. And he wants people to understand that there is an actual right way, there's a, a good way that he wants people to follow God and understand who he 
is. And now as that sort of concludes, he's answered their questions, he's asked them a question, he's now going to make a statement or he's really going to give um, a word of warning about the religious leaders. And in doing so, I think we see a contrast between the physically rich but the spiritually broke and then the physically broke but the spiritually rich. That, that text that we just read, we see this contrast. We see the physically rich or the, the materially wealthy, but the spiritually broke, they just don't get it. And then we see the physically broke, but what Jesus is going to show us that this woman is spiritually rich. And what we're going to talk about this morning is that this really shows us the way Jesus valued. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The way Jesus valued, or more specifically, what Jesus valued. The way Jesus valued or what Jesus valued. Let's pray and then we'll talk about this text. Father, we thank you so much again for your word. We thank you for the work that you're doing. God, we ask that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would, you would be our teacher and you would reveal to us, God, what you care about, what you, what, what you value. And Lord, would you help us to align our lives and our direction in that way. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at this text in three parts. So as we move through it, you kind of know where we're at. When we're on the third one, we're almost done. Um, the first two, well, the first one will be our longest, and then they'll speed up from there. Does that sound good? So just hang, there's three parts, that's it. So number one, we're going to talk about what the scribes valued. Number two, we're going to talk about what Jesus values. And then number three, we're going to talk about the woman that held what was most valuable. That's where we're going. What the scribes valued, what Jesus valued, and then the woman that held what was most valuable. All right, part one, what the scribes valued. Jesus begins with a warning. He says, beware of the scribes. Now, Mark's gospel just shows us the warning that he gives about the scribes. In Matthew 22 and 23, which is a parallel passage to this one, Jesus gives warnings about both the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes were the teachers of the law. They would be both lawyers and Torah scholars because not only did the, the Torah, the law, speak about relationship with God, but for them as Jews, it spoke about sort of civil law, ceremonial law, and then sort of moral law, sort of ethics and things like that. It kind of covered all three. So the scribes that had an understanding of the law would be both teachers of the law so they could understand God, but they were also lawyers because they understood this is how humans are to interact with one another. So they would know the Bible better than anyone, and their job was to study and teach the scriptures. They were in a lot of ways similar to the pastor or the Bible teacher, their job was to study the scripture and explain it. When it came sort of at its, at its sort of grassroots, that's what it was. They were to understand the Bible and explain it. And the scribes spent their time studying and teaching the law. Now the Pharisees spent their time interpreting and attempting to live by the law. So the, the scribes were more scholarly in nature. They would sit down, they would study, they would explain. That was their goal. And then the Pharisees, their sort of thing is like, okay, what does that mean? How do, how do we live? What is that supposed to look like? In any case, these are the people you should be able to trust, right? And, and as, as far as it goes for them in, in their culture, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the, these would be the people that they trusted, 
And Jesus, he gives a, a word of warning. He says, beware, not of the Roman officials. Beware, not of like people that, you know, seem sketchy or suspicious. Jesus says, beware of the scribes, people that you should be able to trust. Jesus is giving a word of warning to. Now, the word beware, it literally means to see something for what it is. Jesus says, beware of the scribes. See them for what they are. Um, this past week, I had the opportunity to use my chainsaw. Anybody get that opportunity this week after the hurricane? We're like, yes, I get to use my chainsaw. And I pulled it out of the, uh, I was getting it, getting it out, and my wife was supervising, observing, just making sure I didn't do anything dumb. But she read to me, she's like, have you read the warning on this thing? And I was like, no, I haven't. And uh, it says warning, like all chainsaw should. And then it says could cause cancer or uh, it could cause reproductive problems. And I was like, I feel like that's not, probably shouldn't be the top of the list of warnings on a chainsaw. <laughs> like, I feel like, <laughs> I mean, I get it, that probably could happen, but like there should maybe like lose a limb, <laughs> right? Like there's a whole list of other things that could be a problem for you. Um, I just was thinking like, that is not seeing it for what it is. This is a chainsaw <laughs> and there is serious harm, there's serious danger, but I don't know if that's sort of top of the list. That's sort of the idea here. Jesus is like, look at them for what they are. See them for what it is. Don't get distracted. Don't get preoccupied. Don't get confused by what they're doing. See it for what it is. And then he warns us to watch out really because of what they value. The first thing that we see that Jesus points out about the scribes that they value is possessions. Number one is possessions. We're told that they go around in long robes. Now, long robes, this idea would be a, a royal or dignified outfit. Or in simpler terms, it was an expensive outfit. Long robes were worn by kings and by priests. The scribes were neither. This was for the wealthy, the powerful, and the ones working in the temple. Long robes were also worn by people of leisure, not by working people. In other words, the scribes watched while other people worked. <laughs> the scribes cared about possessions and appearance. They wanted to be viewed with the wealthy and with the elite. And this rings true of our culture today, even in church culture and sadly even among pastors. We care about the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, whether or not we have a boat and what all of those things say about us. Because it's easy to think that the more valuable the things we have are, the more valuable we are. And it's easy to sort of navigate our life or base the value on our life based upon the stuff that we have. And Jesus says, beware of the scribes. Why? Because they care about their wealth. They care about their possessions. They care about the stuff that they have. Jesus says, beware of the long robes. The second thing we're told is that they, they value popularity. Jesus says that they love greetings in the marketplace. They want to be recognized. They want to be celebrated. They want to be affirmed. They want to be talked about. When Jesus pronounces woes on them or other warnings on them in Matthew's gospel, he warns not only about being greeted in the marketplace, but what they want to be called. 
that they want to be called rabbi or teacher, and they want to be called Abba or Father, names reserved for Christ, Jesus says. He says, beware of these guys. Why? Because they care about being popular. <laughs> they want to walk around and they want to feel important. They want to walk through the marketplace, sort of the place of the common people, and they want everybody to recognize them. Oh my gosh, look at scribe so-and-so. It's Pharisee such-and-such. They want to be noticed by the people. They want to be popular. And this is, once again, a popular value system for us. We want to be known and seen. We want likes on social media. We want to be known maybe by the letters after our name or the office that we sit in or maybe a little more lowbrow. We want to be the person that always has a better story at the party. And we want to be the person that is viewed as popular. And fame is such a driving force in our culture that even for people who will never be famous, we can attempt to act like we are. Right? Like for some of us, like I hate to break it to you, but we'll never be famous. <laughs> We're not going to be a household name. Like, we're going to do our job. We're going to love our family. We're going to live our life, but we won't be a household name. And yet, it becomes so easy for us to attempt to live like we are. Like, we're the people that everybody cares about, everybody knows about, everybody thinks about. And Jesus says, beware. Why? Because they value the greetings in the marketplace. The third thing he says is not only is it a possession and popularity, but also power. We're told that they love the best places at the feasts. This is the seat of status and importance. They want to be seen as having authority and power over people. They don't sit with the common people. They have their elevated seating. Watch out. Why? Well, because they, they love the best seats. Jesus would tell in another story, really, uh, I think it's great advice, but it's kind of practical and simple. He's like, if you go to a wedding, don't sit in the best seat. Why? Because the person that's supposed to sit there might show up and you might have to move. You ever been to like a baseball game or something like that? And you're like, oh, there's nobody sitting there. I'm just going to cruise down to the front. And then what happens? The person with that ticket and you're like, oh, I'm confused. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm in the nosebleeds. How did I get down here? Right? It's like, that's so, it's like practical advice. Just don't sit there. He says, sit in the back. And then if the host of the feast sees you, maybe they'll bring you forward to a better seat. But just assume, in other words, take the low place, Jesus would say. But these guys, they care about power. And then the fourth thing, they care about performance. Jesus says that for pretense, they make long prayers. The idea of pretense is literally acting or a charade. They're making their prayers a spectacle. Jesus, throughout his ministry, would call out the way that the religious leaders prayed because of the words that they said or the way that they said it or how exaggerated it was. And Jesus tells us that when we pray, we should pray in the secret place because it's about personal presence with God. It's not, it's not to say we're not supposed to pray in public, but prayer is communication to God, not to try to impress other people like we know God better than them because of our prayers. G. Campbell Morgan wrote about how when a husband is far away from his wife, his letters are long, and when they're close, his letters are short. <laughs> right? Like when, you're, when distance would cause for longer letters, Closeness allowed, I, I, I just this week when I was studying, I looked back on my text to my wife, and most of my texts are like, heading home, 
I'm surfing here, how are you? Like pretty simple. It's not long paragraphs of text. Of her texts from me are like, can you come home and make me a coffee? Or how are you? Or where are you? Like it's pretty simple texts, right? But the distance causes need for more language, I think. And the, the picture that Camel Morgan was making is when you're close to God, prayers can be simple. <laughs> when, it, when it's constant communication, your prayer, it doesn't have to be like, uh, it's me, it's been a while, <laughs> how are you, like awkward or, or, or exaggerated. He says when they pray, it's a spectacle, it's a charade. They're putting it on for pretense. And our relationship with God isn't a performance. It should be intimate and personal. And these things are essentially the list that we just sort of walk through and what Jesus warns us of is really the main common sins of the world that the Bible warns against. In 1 John, we're told to not love the world because, of all, because all that's in the world is the lust of the eyes, possession, the lust of the flesh, position, and the pride of life, power. Jesus says, don't love those things because that's what the world or the, the people that aren't following God, that's what they're after. And Jesus, in his warning against the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the scribes, he says, basically what they're after is the very opposite of what followers of Jesus should be after. This is the course of the world. This goes to show that if we don't value, if, if we don't allow the value systems of God's word to shape what we value, we can very easily have the same values and goals as the culture around us. That's the warning, right? If you don't allow the word of God and the things of God to give you a value system, it can be very easy for the culture and the world around us to begin to shape what we value. And even these people that spend their life studying God's word, what they value is a lot more like the culture around them and not like the, the word of God. And so Jesus warns about what the scribes valued. Now, part two, what does Jesus value? Now, using what the scribes value sort of as contrast, I think we see what Jesus values. We're going to sort of give the opposite of those things. The first thing I would say is simplicity. Jesus isn't interested in their robes or their phylacteries, like it says in Matthew's gospel, or in the wealthy people that are putting their large amount of money into the treasury, like we read. Jesus' idea of what is valuable is not in money, but in treasure in heaven. People that live within their means and then use what they have to participate in the kingdom of heaven. A radical defiance to our day and age is living simply and not needing more or new. A radical defiance to the culture that we live in and, and following in the way of Jesus is to live simply and not needing more or new. I read some stats recently on storage units. Anybody do that in their free time? Like stats on storage units. Um, this is mind-blowing, but there are 58,000 storage uh, unit facilities in the U.S. Not, not units, um, facilities, 58,000 in the U.S. More are being added all the time. In fact, right around the corner from us on the same street as us, our church at home, there's a brand new one going up. Um, there are more storage units in the U.S. than Starbucks, McDonald's, Walmart, CVS, and 7-Eleven, wait for it, combined. 
You know how we say there's a Starbucks on every corner. There's literally about 10 times more storage units than Starbucks in the U.S. Um, On average, people spend about $1,200 a year to save on stuff that's probably worth a couple hundred bucks. Um, In comparison, there's about 4,000 total facilities in all of Europe. So in the U.S., (laughs) there's 58,000 storage unit facilities, and in all of Europe, there's about 4,000. Now, I'm not hating. If you have a storage unit, I'm I'm not trying to hate. If you own a storage unit facility, you're probably doing great. (laughs) But my point is not that. My point is, I think in, in our culture, we love stuff, right? We love stuff. And when our house can't contain all our stuff, we get a little apartment for our stuff. And it's just, it's kind of that, that, that need for more. And listen, a radical, again, I'm not trying to hate on that specifically. I'm just tr- trying us to, to show us that a radical rebellion to all of that is to live simply and to store up treasures in heaven. And Jesus would say it's not about possessions, but it's about living simply and using what we have to glorify God and to store up treasures in heaven. Secondly, Jesus values serving others. Matthew 23, 11 says, again, this is uh, in the same idea of Jesus pronouncing woes on the scribes and Pharisees. He says, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. It isn't about making ourselves popular or important. For Jesus, it's simple. Serve one another. Stop competing. Stop serving. What are ways that I can use my gifts and my experiences and my abilities and my resources to bless others and to bring glory to God? I think that is such a foundational question that we should ask with all that we have, with all that we do. How can what I have and what I've experienced and, and, and my abilities, what can I use it to, how can I use it to bless others and how can I use it to bring glory to God? And if you don't know how to serve, I, I would say it starts in your home. And then you should participate in your church. Look for ways to participate here. And then look for ways to bless and serve all people around you. But Jesus, for a, a value for Jesus is not in, in, in position, it's not in power, but it's in, it's in serving others. Thirdly, it's in submission. Jesus values submission. Jesus lived his whole earthly life submitted to the will of the Father. Jesus, being the very form of God, did not consider it to be robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He was submitted to the will of the Father, and real power is in voluntary submission. Real strength, real power comes through voluntary submission, where I say I'm giving up myself and my rights and what I have and my strengths or whatever, and I'm submitting it, I'm surrendering it to God and his plan. And then number four, one of, uh, is sincerity. Jesus cares about sincerity. One of Jesus' primary problems over and over with the religious leaders of the day was that they were hypocrites, right? They were actors. They were not consistent. We want to be whole people. 
We don't want to be compartmentalized people. Every area of our life should be consistent throughout. We, want to, we don't want to have our church life and then our work life and then our home life and then our life with our friends and so on and so forth. But rather, we need to allow the gospel to shape every area of our life. I mentioned G. Campbell Morgan already. He talks about in his book, Discipleship, but each chapter is broken up, and he, he calls it Disciples at Home. He calls it Disciples at Work. He calls it Disciples in Private. He calls one chapter is called Disciple at Play. In other words, when you're in recreation and hobbies, I love it. He says that one of the best practical ways he can prepare for a message on Sunday is by going to play golf with his friends on Saturday. I kid you not, this is like from a commentary, he says to pastors, go play golf on Saturday. I'm like, amen, that is a great commentary. Um, But what he's saying is that your life should be consistent throughout, at work, in your home, when you're in recreation, at play, in private, all of these things, we we should be sincere throughout. One of the problems, again, with the Pharisees is that their whole thing was a show. It wasn't consistent throughout their life. Now, one of the amazing things about the grace of God is that we can come to him exactly as we are and where we are. We don't need to come to him with pretense and performance. We can come in ignorance and sincerity. Can I encourage you, maybe, maybe specifically around prayer, because I think prayer is something, it's kind of hard to talk about because it either makes you feel guilty for not doing it enough, right? Like I think any time like a message is given like to pray more, all of us are like, yeah, I could pray more. So like you feel guilty or you're just like, I don't really know how or where to start, or things like that. And I think sometimes it can be intimidating. Maybe you're in a, in a circle of people praying or something like that, and somebody prays, and they're just like, wow, that person knows how to pray. And then you're like, I just don't know how to do it. And one of the, I think, most encouraging thing about prayer is that you can just talk to God. <laughs> it can be simple. I was talking to students recently. I spoke at a chapel um, in, at one of the schools in our, like Christian schools in our town. And um, I was talking about prayer. And I taught them a very simple prayer. It's this, God help, right? <laughs> like God <laughs> help. It's not, it's not exhaustive. It's not super intelligent. It's not like all the father, all the words and all the, you know, all the stuff we say. It's just, God, I need your help. God, would you show up? God, would you do what only you can do? And I think Jesus would, in his sort of challenge to the scribes, is I don't need all the substance. I don't need all the the stuff. I don't need all of this extra thing. Just simply and sincerely come to me. Jesus would, would give a contradiction, again, to the religious leaders, and he, and he said a tax collector. And this religious leader is going uh, 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 into the temple, and he makes his prayer, and his whole prayer is, God, thank you, I'm not like the tax collector. Thank you, I'm not like him. And he goes on and on and on, and then the tax collector, with his face bowed and his head down, beats his chest, and he says, God, forgive me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, that is the guy. <laughs> he gets it. It's simple. It's coming to God, knowing our weaknesses, knowing our shortcomings, knowing that God has what we need and we can look to him for strength and we can look to him for solution. And we don't have to have all the questions right and all the words right, but we can come to him in honesty and sincerity. And God hears our cry and he wants to turn his ear towards us. 
And Jesus doesn't value what the, the world holds valuable. And he wants people shaped and motivated by love and by what he values. So we see, watch out for the scribes because they care about all this stuff. We see really in contradiction what Jesus values. And then thirdly, as we close, the woman who held what was most valuable. Now, the warning to the religious leaders stands in harsh contradiction with the widow at the treasury. Now, the scene is very interesting. We're told it's really all the way back in sort of 11 that Jesus starts making his way into the temple. So in chapter 11, Jesus is trying to get to the temple, and then he has all the conversations, all the stuff happens. And now in chapter 12 and verse 41, Jesus is in the temple. He's made it, right? And he's sitting there, we're told, opposite of the treasury, and they're observing. They're watching as people, one by one, give their gifts, give their offerings into the treasury. Now, whether this was part of the service or this was just what they chose to look at, we don't really know. Right? I'm not really sure how the temple proceedings happen if like, you know, they had worship and announcements and then, all right, everybody one by one come up and we're all going to watch as you put your gifts into the treasury or if it was just sort of like a sideshow that was happening. I'm not really sure. Whatever the case, Jesus has positioned himself with his disciples. Imagine the whole entourage, 12 guys there in him, and they're watching the treasury. And one by one, people come. And I remember as a kid growing up in Sunday school, like seeing cartoons about this with people like Santa Claus-sized bags walking in and then dumping their gold into the treasury. And then well, however it happened, I don't know, but this is what's happening in front of them. One by one, these wealthy people drop in their money, no doubt with some level of attention brought to it, either by themselves or by others. People were noticing it. And then we're told a widow comes in with her gift. Now, a widow, by definition in their culture, would be poor because they would have no way of making money for themselves. They would either need to get remarried, which was difficult in their culture, or they needed a son that was old enough to provide for them. She, we're told, drops all that she has into the treasury. We're told it was two mites or a quadrant. People say that this is about 165th of a day's wage. Um, it would have been the smallest of the Roman currency. It would be like our penny, and it would be the equivalent of about $1 is what she puts in the treasury. So it's the smallest coin in, in uh, the Roman money, be like throwing two pennies in, and the, the, the dollar equivalent would be about one dollar. This is the scene, <laughs> and it's powerful, right? Jesus just had his interactions right outside the temple with all the religious leaders. He gives this word of warning, and then he's standing there observing this happen. This woman walks in, no pomp and circumstance, no splendor, no attention, no glory. She comes in and flicks her two pennies into the treasury. And notice that Jesus observes it. And then he says to his disciples, he teaches them a lesson. <laughs> he says, she, he's like, did you just see that? She gave more than all of the other people. In the economy of heaven, she gave more than all the others combined. This is important. From, from the way that heaven works and the way the, the values to God work, that what this woman just put into the treasury was more than all the rest combined. 
How? Well, because we're told she gave as an act of surrender, not as an obligation or as a sign of affluence. But notice this, and this is what I want us to see, that Jesus simply observes the woman giving and then teaches the disciples a lesson about it. Jesus doesn't start a a campaign or a justice movement to help the widow. He doesn't start a trend about equal giving opportunities where people should give in secret, not in front of everyone else. Jesus doesn't do any of that. In fact, Jesus doesn't even talk to the widow. Jesus doesn't even know that he, she doesn't even know that Jesus saw her. None of that happened. All Jesus does is turns to his disciples and teaches them a lesson. Why? Because in his mind, she already gets it. In his mind, the widow doesn't need to learn anything. She doesn't need anything. She gets it. The disciples, they need to learn something. They need to see, hey, you guys need to be more like her. Why? Because she understands the value system of the kingdom. She understands that it's about giving to God as an act of surrender and submission to him. It's not about all of the other stuff. And the people in the room that needed to learn something or that needed help was not the widow that had $2 or $1 and gave it away. The person that needed help were the 12 disciples to realize that the value system of the kingdom is different than the value system of the world. And so Jesus observes He stands there and he lets the woman give her two mites and move along. And he turns to his disciples and he says, she gets it. She understands it. She understands that life in the kingdom is about surrender. It's about sacrifice. It's about worship. And the disciples in Jesus' mind were more in need than she was. What's valuable to Jesus? Well, it's acts of surrendered worship to God and humble service to others. What's valuable to Jesus is acts of surrendered worship to God and humble service to others. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And I want to encourage us just as we close and as we sort of reflect, and we're going to move into a time of communion together as we reflect on the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus gave to us. And if you're anything like me, I am a, a, a why kind of person. I love to ask why. I'm like, why am I doing that? Why is this happening? And I think sometimes we, we hear like, okay, life is about surrendered worship and acts of humble service. But why? What's the motivation? And the motivation is simple. is because Jesus gave it all for us. That Jesus, in an act of, uh, of glory to God, gave himself for us so that we might have relationship with him. That he gave it all so that we could know him. And then from that, from what Jesus has done for us and the length that he's gone to, to bring us to God, we respond through humble worship and acts of service to God and to others. Can I encourage you that we should get our value system, not from our experiences or from the world around us, but from what God holds most valuable. We find that really simply in his word, in the life of Jesus. We look at what he cares about, and then we we see it modeled, and then we apply it to our life. We say, okay, God, this is what you value. 
And I think for, for, for many of us, as we follow Jesus, we, we see those value systems begin to change. My wife and I were just talking recently that we've been married for coming on nine years, coming on nine years. It's funny, when we first got married, this is super random side trail, okay, so forgive me. But I remember like hearing about people that have been married for a long time, like how could you forget your wedding anniversary, how many years you've been married? And now we're like past the seven year, I'm like, one, two, three, like I totally get it. Anyways, we were talking about how just over time, our priorities changed. Who we were and what we prioritized when we first got married is totally different. And, and, and I attribute it, we attribute it to the work of God in our life. And then us, as we have grown together, just being able to find more of our footing as we grow and mature. That when we were 21 and got married and our priorities and things were so different than they are now. And just as you, as you grow and as you walk with God, things just begin to, God begins to transform us. And the simple things that we thought were so important begin to melt away because we see who God is and what he's done for us and the work that he's done in our lives. And, you know, you have kids or you have people in your family and all of a sudden your priorities change and you're like, man, I just want, I want to hold what God values. I want my life and my aim to be prioritized by what God holds as valuable. So can I encourage you this morning to just continue to allow God to direct you, to lead you, so that you can prioritize what he holds most valuable. That we can live for treasures in heaven, that we can live for the kingdom of God, and we can bring glory to God with our lives, and that we can bless others, we can serve others with all that God has graced us with.